0: So we're now in the midst of the teachings on dream yoga, which will entail both daytime and nighttime practices. And of course, during the nighttime practices, the real entryway, the kind of the watershed, the turning point, is when you are able to lift the lamp in the dark room. Remember the analogy? And that is to actually see clearly the nature of the reality you're experiencing while you are dreaming, which means then, of course, you're recognizing the dream as the dream, which is to say that you're recognizing mental events as mental events. Or, if we go back to the Pali Canon, satipatthana sutta contemplating the mind as the mind. It sounds like being lucid in the waking state, right? And here it's the same thing. Everything appearing to you while you're dreaming consists of formations of your mind. So as I've been saying for years, and I strongly believe, it's the perfect laboratory. If you really want to know the nature of the mind, what better laboratory than to be in a lucid dream where your whole laboratory is made out of the mind? Right? What could be better? You look in any direction and you are attending to what you're trying to understand. And you're on the one hand knowing it, that is, knowing the dream as the dream, but you're also experiencing... The luminous aspect, you remember consciousness has the two aspects, knowing and luminosity, and the luminosity is displaying itself before your very eyes, before your very dream eyes, as the dreamscape, as yourself in the dream, as everything that happens in the dream. So there you are, you're just seeing nakedly these two core defining characteristics of consciousness, knowing and luminosity, knowing and creativity, knowing and the creative displays of consciousness which is not merely an inert knowing but is also enormously creative to our advantage and to our disadvantage now again just to linger there a little bit this is going to segue extremely smoothly with a meditation that we'll be entering in a few minutes when you're there and you're lucid let's say you're very lucid, or you can say insofar as you're lucid, then you're experiencing dream events as dream events, which means you know they're not representing something. That is, there's not something behind them. There's not something hard, substantial, really there from their own side. You're lucid. You know that they are simply appearances. They are empty because there's nothing behind them. When I look over at Patrice, I'm saying, all right, what am I seeing there? I'm seeing appearances arising in the space of my mind, right? Visual appearances, because she's quite a, few, quite a few feet away. And then I could hear her voice, and then the voice is arising in the space of my mind, right? I can go and shake her by the hand, and I feel tactile sensations. And those tactile sensations are arising in the space of my mind. But of course, if I die, she doesn't die, right? So in other words, she's not simply a figment. She's not simply a free creation. Of my mind, as we all know, pardon, pardon me for you know, saying the obvious, but these images are representing something that is independent of my consciousness. That is, she's not simply a figment of my mandala, having no existence outside of myself, right? And so, in that sense, there is, just like when we're practicing loving kindness, meditating on loving kindness, we're not cultivating loving kindness for mental images, right? Likewise for compassion, likewise for empathetic joy. We're not bringing these images and and saying, you know, oh image, I'm so so happy you're, you're enjoying good success because images don't enjoy good success because they're not sentient beings. By way of images, we're focusing on sentient beings, right? That's very different, right? Whereas when you're dreaming and you're simply really seeking to fathom the nature of dream reality and by so doing fathom very deep aspects of the mind, of consciousness itself, then you're simply taking things at face value because they're not representing. There's no one else there. There's nobody looking back at you. When I look over at Morgan, it's not just me looking and that appearances arising in my mind. There's another center of a mandala over there, over yonder. And and from her perspective, everything is coming, you know, so called from my side, all the appearances, the sound, visual, and so forth, are all arising in the space of her mind. So there are multiple centers of the mandala, right? Clear. But when you're simply having a dream, there are not multiple centers of the mandala. Right, It's all coming out of one person's continuum. So to recognize the mind as the mind is to really begin to fathom the nature of the mind. And fathom also when you go deeper, when you release the dream. You release the dream. It's ever so easy to do. Close your eyes or just stop. The whole dreamscape dissolves. Maintain your lucidity and you slip right at your mind it dissolves into the substrate consciousness the whole dreamscape dissolves right into the substrate right so now again you're fathoming you're knowing you're going deeper into the very nature of the mind you're tapping into substrate substrate consciousness and as we'll see that in turn can be a platform for cutting through the substrate consciousness to rikpa cutting through the substrate to Dhatu. and then you're really home, then you're really home. But so much has to do with simply recognize. it's so simple to say, in the Pali Canon and the Dream Yoga and so forth, recognizing mental events as mental events, that mental events simply are that, they are mental events, they're empty appearances. Well, the practice I'd like to return to now—that I've actually, as I don't, I th- as I recall, I've not taught it in this retreat, and taught it innumerable times outside of this retreat—taking the mind as the path, settling the mind in its natural state, because we're doing the same thing, right? While awake, we're directing our attention to the cinema that plays every night five to seven times—you know, the cinema of your dreams. That cinema that you know shows about every 90 minutes and so forth, at nighttime, that domain, that datu, that domain of experience, that's exactly what we're attending, precisely what we're attending, one-on-one equivalence to what we're attending to when we're having a lucid dream, space of the mind. Your five physical senses are dormant. Here we would like them to be. They kind of impinge anyway. But the deliberate focus of attention is exactly on what's left over when you fall on deep asleep and you are dreaming. right? So in this practice of taking the mind as a path or settling the mind in its natural state, you see, everything I've just said now pertains exactly to this. We're seeking to understand the appearances of the mind, the images, the memories, the thoughts, emotions, fantasies, and so forth, and recognize that's what they are. They're not by nature mine, and they're not something else. Now, when we are caught up in in rumination, semi-conscious, mind-wandering, and the mind's going here and there and here and there. It's going off to the referent, or the reference, of our thoughts and memories, right? And in this, in this, when this happens, for example, when people have a trauma, and then they're, perhaps involuntarily, recalling the traumatic episode, and those images are coming up, and they're being troubled by that. And they, maybe they really need to go to a therapist who has maybe possibly years or decades of experience of helping such people. Uh, When the mind is driven back to the traumatic episode, what do you think when the person is experiencing that? Is the person attending to mental images as mental images or attending to what occurred some time ago? Well, those are entirely different, right? What occurred some time ago doesn't exist anywhere in the universe. Anywhere. So right now you're attending to something that does not exist at all. It's gone. Nowhere. And so, out of nothing, you're creating misery for yourself. Out of literally, out of nothing. It's like having a really bad nightmare. And there's nothing there. But you're traumatized in the nightmare, and then you wake up and you're still traumatized, heart beating and feeling bad, and maybe it ruins the whole day. And it's creating out of nothing. Well, it's creating out of nothing because of ignorance and then delusion. We don't know that it's a nightmare when it's happening. And when we're caught up in semi-conscious rumination, we also are ignorant that we're ruminating, otherwise we just stop. And then being ignorant, then we are focusing on the referent of the, the images, the memories, and so forth, and thereby re-traumatizing ourselves. And so when we recognize that, we, then we recognize we have some Freedom. If we don't recognize it, then we just feel that we are trapped by our past. I can't, what can I do? This happened. There's no way, I can't forget it. There's no way of undoing it. It absolutely happened, and I am simply a victim of my past, and my past is torture. And then you can be torturing yourself for the rest of your life. When you don't see that you have a choice, you don't have a choice. That's simple. right? And so, so much of this whole path of dharma is recognizing that we, have, that we have choices. When I keep banging away at scientific materialism, all I'm really saying is that we have a choice. If you want to believe that, you can. Nobody's going to stop you. I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to punish you. You don't have to agree with anything I say whatsoever. But you do have a choice. And a lot of people would suggest you don't have a choice. Or if you have a choice, then your choice is you don't believe in science anymore. <laughs> Which means you're You're an idiot. <laughs> Well, I'm suggesting, no, you don't have to be an idiot. You don't have to believe in scientific materialism. That's your choice. Your choice. But you have to see it. You can't simply be told it. And so, as we're cultivating this ability of taking the mind as a path, settling the mind in its natural state, taking the mind as the object of shamatha, it's called by all three of those names, then the crucial element so strongly parallel. To developing the ability of lucid dreaming and then dream yoga is to hold your own ground. Hold your own ground, you know. When we're doing the earlier practice of just resting your awareness and being aware of the fluctuations of the in and out breath, in and out breath. Right? Thoughts are bound to arise. I mean, they're not just going to stop because you'd like them to stop. They keep on coming, right? It's okay. But when they come, are you then caught up, like as if somebody puts a bag over your head, like, like a kidnapper. They come up from behind you. I've seen it in the movies. They come up behind you and they put a bag over your head and then they throw you into the trunk of the car and then you come to someplace. Maybe they even put some chloroform 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 in your nose. So you really pass out, right? And then you wake up and where am I, where am I, right? But the bag over the head is the real clincher. That's what really gets things going because now you don't know where they're taking you. And so... That's what happens when we get caught up in rumination. We're sitting there, oh, I'm totally present. You don't even notice when it happens. You know? You're know, you just sitting there minding your own business and then the bag's over your head. And then suddenly you're off someplace distant, wandering around, wandering around. I don't like that. Oh, she's pretty. I want to have sex with her. Oh, you know, like, you're actually, she, she's not there, you know. That's just an image. You can't have sex with her. <laughs> she's an image, you know. And that guy, he didn't really do anything to you. It's not even a guy, it's an, it's an image. You know. So it's really like we've been stupefied, not only drugged, but stupefied, wanting to have sex with our thoughts, wanting to beat up on other thoughts. It's kind of silly, and it looks really funny. kind of. We do chuckle when, from the waking perspective, but when we're inside of it, Rumination is not pleasant. About 80% of it is is kind of unpleasant. So it's about having choices. And so in the practice of just, let's say, this kind of Dzogchen approach to mindfulness of breathing we're doing, resting there as much as we can, not by holding on tightly, because there's nothing to hold on to. It's just space, resting awareness in space. But with that relaxation, developing kind of a Teflon awareness, so even when sticky, gooey thoughts come along, they don't, they don't stick. They just pass right on by, and you remain untouched. And the breath comes and goes, breath, breath comes and goes. But you don't have to move with it. You don't vacillate. You don't move from your throne. Well, what I'd like to do in the next session is to prepare us, give us a bit more armor, a bit more armor. For being able to practice the shamatha without a sign, or for that matter, mindfulness of breathing, and the armor is that when we're resting there in the stillness of our own awareness, and a thought does come up, we learn through training how to recognize it as swiftly as possible. In other words, we see the kidnapper coming. Gotcha! I've got a paper bag. I want to put it over your head, you know. And then she says, "I don't think you, I don't think so," you <laughs> And she backs up. You know, that's what you do when somebody comes with a paper bag to put over your head. When you see them coming, then you can say, I think, well, all things considered, no thank you. I would you know, keep your paper bag to yourself. And no, I don't really want to get in the trunk of your car, but thanks for the offer. You know, when you see it coming, you can make a choice. When you don't see it coming, then you never had a choice. The paper bag is over your head, you've got the chloroform in your nose, and you're in the trunk. There was no choice there at all. Right? And so how can we develop the ability to make a choice? If you want to have a rumination, then you can then you choose to have a rumination if you like. But if you choose not to, you actually have that choice and can carry through with it. Well, for that, we really need to develop an interest, an intent focus as we're resting in, the, in, resting in that stillness of awareness such that as soon as a thought, an image, a memory and so on comes up, that we, we see it as soon as it pokes its head around the corner. Or like a cat staring at a mouse hole. As soon as a little mouse puts its head out through the door, out through the little hole, I see you. You catch it right there. Right. And then you don't need to do anything about it, as we'll see. But then they won't sneak up behind you and be able to kidnap you. Develop that ability. Now this one, really, I could go on and on and on, but I think a lot of this is familiar. I won't elaborate much. But the practical applications of having this ability, of being aware of the thoughts, images, and, let's not forget, the subjective impulses, the desires and emotions. And oh yes, let us not forget, the mental afflictions. I would love that I could give you a technique that could just say, you know, here, if you'd, if you'd like not to have any mental afflictions anymore, well then, just do this. I would really like to be able to give you that. I would charge you heavily. If I did, I'd want to make a lot of money on that one for sure. But I don't know, I don't know any such technique that can just say, do this technique, the mental afflictions won't come up anymore. The Buddha didn't have one, so I think I'm probably going to not come up with it either. They're going to come up. Until their root is cut, they will come up. You know. But the question is, when they come up, do you see them or not? And that takes a bit of education. In our modern civilization, East and West, I don't see much difference anymore. We don't, this, is, this is a contrived term, mental affliction, mental affliction. I mean, take that, to, you know, take that to a psychology course and say, you know, I've been learning about mental afflictions. What do you have to say about them? And they, they might say, well, you mean depression? Or do you mean post-traumatic stress disorder or anxiety? What are you referring to? Because that's not a word. It's mental affliction. I mean, it's not gibberish, but it doesn't. You're not going to find that term, I don't think. Am I right, Marissa? It's not there, and and then they have a lot of terms you don't find in Buddhism. You know, like emotion. <laughs> How's that one for for starters? You don't find the word emotion in Buddhist texts either. That doesn't mean we don't have any. We don't understand them, but that particular category you just don't find in Buddhism. Well, maybe there's value in that. But then we can learn from the psychologists because they have certainly a lot of insights expertise is not cultivated through traditional Buddhist practice. But mental affliction is not a term that children know about, for example. But men- recognizing... well, There are a lot of mental afflictions. How do you recognize them? We can go through a whole list, and in the, in the fall in Santa Barbara, I'm going to give a one-week retreat on contemplative science of the mind. We're going to go through 51 mental factors. And then we'll get to know them. We'll, we'll, I will identify each one according to the textbook of my teacher, Genel Sangasa. He wrote a marvelous book on this topic that I just got permission to use, the translation. So I'm very happy with that. My old friend, uh, I, his name is Gareth Sp- Sparham. very good scholar, very good scholar. He translated this. He just gave me permission to use it in this text, when, for which I'm very grateful. It's a beautiful text. We memorize it verbatim, the whole text. All of us did, as it you do back in the old days. Um, but the point here is that you you understand... What a mental affliction is generically—that is, what do they all have in common, right? And then you—and then you understand them individually. You also understand wholesome, virtuous mental mental processes and so forth. But the point here being that once you've been introduced to them, like it's like being on the police force and the police being able to round up all the crooks and the gangsters and the you know the lawbreakers and said, "Okay, police force, I want you to recognize here is—they were so kind to just show up." You know, invite him all to the party so the police force, you can recognize all the gangsters in town. Would you please introduce yourself? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, I, I, I shoot people, and I rob banks, and I'm a pickpocket. And thank you, that was so much. Okay, I wish we could keep you, but I guess that's not part of the deal. So go back, and you'll pop up and, you know, surprise us. You know, but it would be helpful if the police force could have introduction to all the lawbreakers in town. You know, so when they see them, oh, I remember you, you're the pickpocket, aren't you? Well, it's getting to know who are the pickpockets, who are the thieves, who are the bandits, the muggers, and so forth in the, in the society of the mind, to use Marvin Minsky's term. But generically, and because I'm not going to give 51 mental factors right now, generically, mental factors are processes of the mind that disrupt the equilibrium, that rob us of peace of mind, of serenity, of calm, of composure, of balance. Those mental processes that disrupt the equilibrium of the mind. Those are mental afflictions. That needs a lot of nuance, and I'm not going to give it right now. But that's the thumbnail sketch, that's the definition. And so to recognize them, well, the chief three, you know, the three on the three most wanted list, that is, we'd love to completely, you know, extinguish them. Delusion, craving, and hostility, that's a good place to start, and then all the derivatives but to recognize them. Exactly what do you mean by delusion? And what is craving? Is it simply desire or is it more than that? And what about hostility or aggression? Is that simply not liking something, disliking something, or is there more to it than that? Well, this is an education. To my mind, this is education that should be offered in every school system in the the world. Because it's not Buddhist, it's just recognizing there are toxins in the mind. And whether you're an atheist, a Christian, a fundamentalist Muslim, or whatever you may be, these are the toxins of the mind. These are what destroy your own well-being, give rise to all manner of vices and evils in the world. They are the root. And to be introduced to them. So when they crop up, oh, you're craving. You're not simply desire. You're craving. And you're, you're the mental affliction of, of aggression, of hatred, of malice. I recognize that you're, you're way beyond merely dislike or aversion. You, you've, got a real, you've got some real tox, toxicity to you. And that's the nature of delusion. That stands at the root of all other mental afflictions, to recognize them as they arise, and that takes some training. But it's it's not incredibly hard; just take some training, and then I'll give you the key. If that training is there, if you've come to recognize, and what you you could have a coalition of secular people, atheists, agnostic, materialists, and Christians, and Muslims, and Taoists, and Confucianists, and, and Buddhists, and Hindus, all coming together and say, you know, can we agree on some things here? We're not trying to agree on everything, but can we agree on certain tendencies of the mind that are clearly afflictive, that has nothing to do with metaphysics? Can we agree on that? Can we un- and why don't we throw up some ideas? How about hatred? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know? How about self-centered craving and greed? Good thing or bad thing? How about arrogance? That's good thing or a bad thing? I and mean, you might come up with some list that we say, you know, there's a lot of consensus here. We recognize these are really toxic. These spoil everything. Interpersonal relationships, relationship with the environment, and so on. I would love to be part of that council. I mean, maybe just to be a fly on the wall. I don't need to say anything. But now here's the deal. Once we've recognized with varying degrees of nuance, richness, texture, depth, subtlety, what are the afflictions of the mind? How do they arise? How do they manifest? Then here's the real essential point. When they arise, you have a choice. You don't have a choice whether they arise or not. That's one of those things you don't have a choice for. right? We don't choose, I think I'm about to be jealous. I'm about to be really angry. I'm, going to be, I'm about to have a lot of craving and attachment. We don't choose that, not normally. It happens to us, like getting the flu. So we don't have a choice there. But once mental affliction comes up, rears its head, whether as a very attractive head, like craving and attachment, I'm going to give you stuff you like. Or hostility and aggression, big, ugly, demonic head, wants to bite everybody's head off. Uh, When it comes up, you have a choice. If you're there, if they don't get the bag over your head before you recognize what's happened, when you see them coming, when you see them as soon as they've cropped up, you have a choice. And that is, do you want to allow them in do you want to allow them to dominate your mind and do you want to act under their influence? Or would you like to, as Davis says, so eloquently and repetitively, remain like a piece of wood? Recognize, aha, I see my mind just got angry. Aha, I see arrogance just arose. Oh, I see some craving coming up. But I am remaining like this. I am remaining in my own ground. And I'm seeing. I'd like to really make a sarcastic comment. I'd like to make a really deprecating comment, not to some foolish idea. That's perfectly fine. Fair game. You know, we don't have to show respect to the idea that the brain is a refrigerator. We don't have to say, well, after all, you came from Aristotle, so I think I have to show you some respect, Mr. Refrigerator. You know, We don't have to do that. We don't have to respect all ideas or behavior. You know, some are ridiculous. Then we can ridicule them. What's the big deal? Ridiculous ideas, they don't hurt. They're not sentient beings. Right? If you identify with a ridiculous idea, it might get a bit of collateral damage. That's okay. <laughs> Here's the choice Would you like to remain like a piece of wood and let the mental affliction like a dark cloud come over and then dissipate? Or you would like to go semi conscious? Let the mental affliction put a bag over your head, carry you off, and have you engage in regrettable episodes. So there's a key to world peace. And it wouldn't solve all of humanity's problems, just the vast majority of them. Really. Children all over the world, whether they're being raised as atheists, Muslims, Christians, whatever they are, teach them what mental afflictions are. Every tradition, including atheists and so forth, they don't, you know, they have morality. Most of them have morality. They have a sense of healthy mind and unhealthy mind. Religious people have no monopoly on that. Clear. A lot of them are very good hearted. There's no question about that. So, wrong view is okay, but that doesn't mean all of your views are completely screwed up. A lot of them are very decent, very fine, some of them are very noble people. I've never, been, never really been criticizing people as such. So, Teach your children. These are mental afflictions, and these are wholesome qualities of mind. And now, from grade, I think, seven, that is, no, no, not grade seven, age seven, I've heard. I only know it by reading something. I don't know whether it's true or not. But I've read somewhere that children start to develop their really metacognitive abilities around age seven. They become more and more vividly aware of what's going on in their minds. So I've read. If that's false, good. Give me some better information, because I've not studied that. I've just read a bit. But whenever, as soon as possible, age five, six, seven, eight, whenever it is where children aren't simply frustrated because you're teaching them something they can't do, when they can do it, then uh, teach them how to refine, develop, focus, and inform their metacognitive awareness of their own mental states such that when a mental affliction comes up, they recognize it, and they know, because you've helped them know, they have a choice. You would like to do this, you'd like to punch, to shout, to scream, to deprecate, to be sarcastic, to retaliate, to crave, grasp, to be selfish, and so forth. Their impulse is there and you have a choice. If you really know it's good for you and everybody else, why don't you let it pass? And that's the key to world peace. When mental afflictions come up, and they will come up in children, adults, extremely intelligent people and very unintelligent people, it happens, right? But when they come up, we have a possibility of making choice. And that is don't act on it. It's not to mean don't act. It just means wait until the mental afflictions is passed and then act. Maybe act about the same thing. Maybe something, you know, when there's sexual abuse, there's injustice here, there's lying and deception and exploitation there, not a time to be passive. But it is a time not to add oil to the fire by bringing your own mental afflictions to the situation and then aggravating that. And then people get pissed off, you get pissed off, everybody's pissed off. And then we have, you know, conflict everywhere. So that's it. So we have to cultivate where we are right now. We're not ready right now to start a school where children early on are taught what are mental afflictions, what are wholesome mental states, here's how you identify them, and here's how you're in a position to make a choice. To choose if you wish, because you see it's in your own best interest. As the Dalai Lama said, if you're going to be intelligent, be wisely so. In your own self-interest, it will serve you well not to act right now is that will probably lead to something regrettable, and then you'll have to bear that. Why not just be a piece of wood and then act when the mental weakness passed? That would solve most of humanity's problems right there. Simple. And no religion involved. You don't have to believe in karma or anything else. Right? It really would do it. Deva said it in so many words about what, I think it's already in the notes, about a half dozen verses, be like a piece of wood, be like a piece of wood. People get mental afflictions, but at least we don't have to make them contagious. We don't have to enact them in the world. So, in conclusion, this took longer than I expected, but it often does, this very strong parallel there. To become lucid with respect to your mind in the waking state. And making that a habit. When you're eating, you're walking, you're just doing whatever you need to do throughout the course of the day, that there is kind of like being aware of your dashboard, being aware of your speed, the engine temperature the, you know, t- tachometer and so forth in your car, you're aware of the feel of the car. If it starts to make some strange sounds or whatever, if you're a good driver, ah, that's, that's a sound I'm not aware of, I might need to pull over, or whatever, or I see I'm just about out of gas, or whatever. But, you know, that's what we have dashboards for, and that's part of good driving. And so likewise, to look at the dashboard of your mind and to be aware of that pretty much constantly, even when you're falling asleep, what's arising there, what's arising Where is an impetus action? Is it a wholesome impetus or an afflictive one? That's a skill to be cultivated. It it seems like it's not biologically given. I've had many conversations about these topics with Paul Ekman, who's very much up on evolutionary biology and a tremendous admirer of, of Charles Darwin. And there are some things that we're naturally gifted for biologically, and some we're not. And this isn't one of them. This is not something that people are just naturally gifted by a biological imperative for survival and procreation, to be aware of what's going on in our minds. It's uh, something ability we do have, but it doesn't get better if you don't use it. And it can atrophy if you don't use it, even to the point that some very intelligent people say, we don't have such an ability. And I've cited them already, no need to do so again. But if you don't use it, you lose it. If you've lost it, you don't know you have it. If you don't have it, you think nobody else has it. And then you share your, del- your delusion like swine flu and delude a lot of other people to persuade them they don't have it, which means they'll have no incentive for cultivating it, refining it, using it to their own benefit. You know That's where some passion arises to me. You're not only screwing yourself, you're screwing up whole generations of people because you're spraying your ignorance and delusion and your metacognitive... Deficiency, and telling everybody that's the norm, that you're healthy and they have to not rise above your level. Sigh. You know That shouldn't happen. No. I suck at art. I can't draw. I can't even draw a circle. But then for me to tell, nobody can draw a circle. Nobody has artistic ability. I don't. You don't either. You know, Well, that'd be too bad. factually nobody believed me because it's external. But metacognitive, that's internal. So you can bluff your way through. You know, especially if you speak from a perspective of authority. So there it is. I'd like to read one short passage from Lerat Lingba and then I'd like to have a silent meditation so I won't, you don't have to multitask. This is just a brief reminder uh, from a wonderfully succinct account of this that I have taught as far as I can tell, countless times by now. Uh, but, but I'm not going to read the whole passage, just, just a short, right to the point. This is from Leraplingba, 19th century. He lived from 1856 to 1926. His commentary, which was actually an oral commentary that was written down, uh, his commentary on settling the mind in its natural state, in his general commentary to the heart essence of Vimalamitra, or Vimalanintik, So here, you can just read this. I'm not going to give instruction now because I think overall you really know this. This is just a reminder, and it's short. Let your gaze be vacant, with your body and mind inwardly relaxed, and without allowing the continuum of your consciousness to fade from a state of lucidity and vivid clarity. Sustain it naturally and radiantly. Do not contaminate it with many critical judgments. Do not take a short-sighted view of meditation and avoid great hopes and fears that your meditation will turn out one way and not another. At the beginning, have many daily sessions, each of them of brief duration, and focus well in each one. That's enough for now. So, please find a comfortable position. The supine is perfectly good for this. Setting, sitting, of course. So once the bell is rung, I will be silent. So I suggest you begin with settling body, speech, and mind, of course. Spending some time... Just resting in the stillness of your awareness, being aware of the ebb and flow of the fluctuations of the breath, and then turn your attention single-pointedly to the space of the mind and whatever ariseth in it, distinguishing between the stillness of your awareness, the movements of the mind, and moving into that first of the four types of mindfulness, namely single-pointed mindfulness, in which you're simultaneously aware of the stillness of your awareness and the movements of the mind. So we'll now have a silent session. Let's continue with the text as the days are passing by. So we're on now page 143. And he's given a bit of theoretical background in this section on the impure, illusory body. Impure means created by the power of karma and klesha, so our ordinary body, ordinary sense of being embodied. So now, within this context, he says, Here then fasten a very clear mirror on a cubit high post in front of you. So, so about two and a half feet, something like that. So, But basically, just put a mirror in front of you. Bathe yourself... And look at the mirror image of your form adorned with ornaments. So, sorry for the guys here who are probably kind of out of luck. I don't know how many ornaments you brought. Probably also the women here. But people listening by podcast, knock yourself out. You know. Men, put on your finest attire. Women, the lipstick, all the stuff that you do. And, you know, make yourself look glamorous. And even take a bath. And then, as you're gazing at yourself, then praise it. Praise this as you're looking at the reflection of yourself in the mirror. Praise it, and so on. So lavish. I mean, have some fun with this one. You know, have some fun. I'm not going to give any script. You can make your own script, but you know, get into it. Praise it, and so on. See if there's, and see if there is a mindset of pleasure or displeasure as you're gazing right into your eyes with such admiration bordering on intoxication you know even if you're elderly you know you look so distinguished you you've aged so well there's such dignity in your very demeanor there's a nobility to quality in those wrinkly face wrinkles on your face you know you just you you arouse a sense of awe <laughs> and deep admiration this is the dignity of old age everybody should want to look like you Unlike those unripe pink young people. <laughs> One day they will mature into the ripe flower that you have become. Lay it on and have fun. <laughs> and see whether any pleasure or displeasure arises, apart from your laughter, you know. If there is, if, some, you know, if you're getting a rise, something is rising up. As you, play, as you praise yourself, if there is some pleasure or displeasure, think to yourself, each time there arises pleasure due to praise of this body, which is like a reflection in a mirror, you are confused. Okay, this is a true statement. This body is simply an appearance due to an aggregation of dependently related causes and conditions. But in reality, it has never existed. So once again, we see a real Dzogchen spin on that one, right? The same thing, so I don't need to elaborate, I did already. Uh, if, we're, if we're dealing with kind of a more galupa like approach, then this is arising, it does conventionally exist as a matrix of dependent related events, but now the hammer comes in, this ontological shock therapy, and that is this appearance. The appearance, of course, the appearance is there. And the appearance is arising independent upon various contributing causes and conditions. It's arising as a dependently related event, but in reality it has never existed. So, once again, you need to know context. From what perspective has it never existed? Doesn't exist now, didn't in the past, and never will in the future. From what perspective? Rikpa, yeah, Rikpa. Because to Rikpa, Rikpa, that is, when you've realized Rikpa and still, as always, you're in the center of your mandala. You always are, whether you're in a hell realm or a pure realm or anything in between. You are in the center of your mandala, right? And so if you are viewing reality from the perspective of Rigpa, especially, let's say you've just gone to the culmination of the path. You've achieved what is called zep'e, Chunya Zepin Nangwa. It's the culminating of four visions in the direct crossing over, the culminating phase of Dzogchen. The final one is chunyait zepin nangwa, it's a vision in which all impure appearances driven by karma and klesha, driven by all manner of causes and conditions, samsaric ones, all of these are extinguished in ultimate reality, dhammata, never to return. From your perspective, you're finished. And from your perspective, from your center of your mandala, your mandala will never be samsara again. From your perspective, there will never be impure visions again. Is you've completely purified your mind right down to the ground, and there's not even the last tiniest vestige of obscurations, of karma, of klesha, of mental afflictions, of cognitive obscurations, and so on, completely irreversibly and totally f- pure. So from your perspective, then there are no impure appearances of any kind, right? And now this perspective is you see the perspective that was there at the ground, the path, and the fruition. And that's always the perspective of a Buddha, from your perspective. Now, happily, you're not now simply trapped inside your own purity, because you also have this jinyet kempeyeshe, the primordial consciousness that, that knows the full range of phenomena. Which means, as a Buddha you know that there are as many centers to the universes as there are sentient beings, and so you see the full range of how many centers of mandalas there are throughout infinite space. And then you see from Elizabeth's perspective, Michael's perspective, Michelle's perspective, as a Buddha, you're seeing not only from your own Dharmakaya perspective, but empathetically, non-dually, you're seeing from the perspective of Michelle, from the perspective of John, and so on, and then you say, aha, from their perspective, there are indeed impure appearances. From their perspective, they're suffering because of mental afflictions, and so on. Right? But from your perspective, no. Now this is inconceivable, because simultaneously you're experiencing your own and you're experiencing others, and it's non-dual. So there's a point you just have to say, you're not going to be able to imagine this. You won't be able to imagine this. You can experience it, you can know it, but only by getting there. But you won't be able to suss it out, figure it out, and imagine it before you're there, because a sentient being cannot imagine what it's like to be a Buddha. You can imagine that it must be a good thing and go in that direction. That's what the pointing out instructions are for. But you'll not be able to snare it in the snare, in the net, of your conceptual elaborations. And so, in that regard, in reality, it has never existed. That impure, we're talking about the impure, illusory body, right? That impure, illusory body, the body itself, the reflection of it, have never existed, not from the perspective of Rigpa. It has no existence whatsoever. So why, then we continue, why do you grasp onto it as yourself and take pleasure in it? So you're challenging an old habit, and you're challenging it with a sharp, sharp sword of wisdom. Why are you identifying with this which has never been you, never will be you, is not you now? Why are you doing that? You're only setting yourself up for suffering. In, if we go back to foundational Buddhism, if we ask what is the source, what is the origin of that third dimension of suffering, let's, let's wrap all of this, let's wrap all of the, the, the fabric of this retreat all interweaving, right? We have the three modes of suffering, remember? Explicit suffering, suffering of change, and then one, just for shorthand, I'm calling existential suffering. If we go to the classic sources in Buddhism, what's the cause of this existential suffering, our fundamental existential vulnerability to suffering of all kinds. What's the cause? And the answer in Tibetan is it is the skandhas, the aggregates, the psychophysiological aggregates that we closely hold on to. It's because we are closely identifying with our bodies, our mental processes, states of consciousness, just everything there, the body and the mind. Because we are closely identifying with our bodies and mind, therefore we are subject to existential suffering. That's the answer. That's the right answer. That's not an opinion. That's the right answer. In Buddhism, it's universal. Well, he's saying, why don't you stop that? Why don't you stop doing that? And that is, why don't you start seeing you have a choice? This is what Buddhism is so much about. It's just recognizing you had choices where you never knew it. And once again, if you don't know you have a choice, you don't have a choice. So, why don't you stop and just recognize, as we see right there in the, Satipa, in the Pali Canon, Satipatthana Sutta, and then one contemplates the body as what? As the body. Not as myself. I'm too chubby, I'm too skinny, I'm too old, I'm too wrinkly. No, no, it's just the body. It has no owner, it's just the body. It arose independence upon causes and conditions, none of which were you. Right? None of which were you. You weren't the sperm, you weren't the egg, you weren't the food, you weren't, you were none of the causes. It arose in upon a whole bunch of causing conditions which were not you, and now that it's there, it's still not you, and when it dies and turns into mulch or fertilizer or ashes, it won't be you then either. Never has been, is not, and will not be you. So then why are you aden- identifying with this you? The body. And being happy when somebody says, oh, you look so young. You've hardly aged you're, you're getting younger. Oh man, doesn't that bring a warm, warm feeling to your heart? You're looking much younger than the last time I saw you. You must be doing something right, because young, of course, is intrinsically good. That's why we'd all like to look like babies, because they're younger than most of us, you know. The board meeting at you know Google and so forth have a bunch of little babies showing up. Because they're the cutest, you know. So why are you doing this? Or somebody says, Oh, you're looking unwell, or you've really aged since I've saw you've really aged since I saw you. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Who greets that with a smile? <laughs> like, why don't you keep your bloody opinions to yourself? What did I do to you? <laughs> you know? Weird, but there it is. He's saying, Get over it, you have a choice. Oh, it's time, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) That should do it, you know. Okay, why do you grasp onto it as yourself and take pleasure in it? Meditate for a long time on the reflected body in the mirror. Okay, so there's one practice that needs no more commentary, so I'm going to move right on. But you see, if if it's if it's going to if you're going to do this on the Positive side praising yourself, then you need to do on the negative side too, right? So that's where we're going. Kind of obvious. This is daytime dream yoga, so don't tell me you can't do it, right? No whining, please. No, I can't do dream yoga. I haven't had a lucid dream. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> you can look into the mirror and abuse yourself, at least you can do that. <laughs> you know. I'm sure you can do that. Don't tell me you can't do that. If you don't have a mirror, I'll find one. No, there's mirrors in every room. Here, you can find them. So then we move on. Then utter abuse and point out numerous failings. You know, just put yourself down and see if there's displeasure. And if so, consider all praise and abuse are, la- are like habitual propensities, just old habits. And since the body has no essence, the attitudes of pleasure and displeasure are confused. Okay. So in other words, it's just maintaining this complete sense of equilibrium. And it's the equilibrium having no target. It's having no target. If somebody says, you know, you're really seriously, oh, whatever. Whatever they say, I don't even give an example. But about your body, you know. Then... It's like you're criticizing this chair, this chair I'm sitting on. It's my chair, right? You see, I find that that's a really ugly color of the chair. It's charcoal. It's kind of like disgusting. I mean, where's the color? This is Thailand. What are they thinking of a black chair for Dharma? What is this, a bench, a chair, a couch? What in the hell is this thing anyway? This is so inappropriate, and it's squishy. I guess it's made for people with bony butts. You know? So you can insult this chair as much as you like. Do you really think it's going to get to me? Like, oh, you're hurting my feelings? <laughs> really? You, wanna, you, you can if you like. You can go ahead and just start insulting the chair as much as you like. It's my chair. I get to sit on it for eight weeks, Right? That is just a nominal my chair, and then I won't have it anymore. Well, for a long time I refused to buy a house. I just finally, you know, with my wife, I couldn't buy one myself, but my wife and I teamed up. But for years and years before we finally bought a house, I said, why should I buy, buy a house? I'm only renting my body. You know, the body's on loan. Like, the lease will run out any time now. And to think that I own a house which is much, much bigger than my body, now that really, I, that really belongs to me. But then I know my body doesn't. Because if it belonged to me, it would never get sick. You know, I just say, body, stop it. You're mine. And look handsomer, for heaven's sakes. (laughs) You know, if it's mine, I mean, shape shape up. Look handsome. I want to look like, you know, Richard Gere 30 years ago. (laughs) Come on, body. I mean, shape up. You're mine. So let's see those cartilage and muscles and skin shape up. You know, look good. But it's not, and so so. If you find yourself getting disturbed, you might might, might want to do a reality check. So utter abuse, etc. Clearly meditate on the mirror reflection as your mental object. In other words, it can't be you. If it's a mental object, it can't be you. It's something appearing to in the space of your mind, like your thoughts, images, memories. They're not you. The image of your body is not you. It's a mental object. Therefore, it can't be you. Right. Anything that's arising as a mental object can't be you because you're over here on the subjective side. So if it's appearing as something you can perceive, then it's not you. So look what happens in the four applications of mindfulness. You're you're running the whole gamut, the whole spectrum. You're looking at your body inside and out, all the individual parts, all the elements and so forth, and they're all arising as objects of the mind, right? They are, which means they're not you. And then you observe feelings as feelings. Well, that means they're not you. And then mental events as mental events, that means they're not you. And phenomena as phenomena, they're not you. So then you ran through everything that might be you, none of them are you, and then you turn right in upon consciousness and observe that, and that can't be you either. So then you finished. None of that is you and none of that is by nature yours, so that's a big step in the right direction. So clearly meditate on the mirror reflection as your mental object and alternate between praise and abuse and equalize them, and that is one session. Until there's just no rise, there's no emotion coming up, whether you're just lavishing praise upon yourself or hurling abuse and ridicule and disparagement and so forth, when it's just even. Because they're all there's just there's no target for any of them. If you praise this body, well that's all very well, but you missed me because you just hit the the body and that's not me and it's not even really mine, so knock yourself out. Praise it if you like. If it makes you happy, go ahead. And if somehow you're able to release some tension and so forth by abusing the body verbally, that's fine. That's fine, too. If that makes you happy, it kind of releases some discharge like sneezing or passing wind. kind of gives you some relief. Then go for it, you know. But it has nothing to do with me, really. It's just a body, right, until it's even, really even. So that's one session. Since our time is a little bit short, that is as time going by, we'll continue. And this is so clear that I'll bring a bit more. So that was about the body, right? So we're going to do, obviously, body, speech, and mind. Just finish with body. And all of this is about not identifying with, not, first of all, not reifying, and then not identifying with, and thus making yourself a target. So somebody says, oh, I think you've put on a few pounds. And then feeling contraction. Like, oh, oh. And like that was injurious. Like, oh. Do do other people notice that in fact I have? And I'm really embarrassed about it. But if I get an extreme makeover, I'll feel much better about myself. (laughs) Crazy. This is where the media, the entertainment is just taking delusion and just saying let's just make it bigger let's just let's just glorify delusion so you'll look better and then you'll feel better about yourself but of course then you'll think less about other people because there if you really have an extreme makeover you'll work out in the gym you're eating right you're getting all the you know this tuck and what all that stuff they do and then you're looking like oh now you're looking now you're looking and not like them who couldn't afford the extreme makeover? But you know. ah, thank goodness, I don't look like them. So, just delusion upon delusion, and you're paying for it. At least delusion should be free. <laughs> OK, now speech. Then for the training in the speech being like an echo. So your body's like an illusion, your body's like a, a reflection in a mirror, and that's your actual body is like a reflection in a mirror. It appears, but it's empty, as he said, empty of essence. It has no essence, which means no real substance to it. It's all just layer upon layer of empty appearances. And that is it. A friend of mine, this, this eminent neuroscientist, this was years ago when cognitive neuroscience was just starting, they wanted to know what the brain looked like. And so one of the techniques a long time ago, but it was very good technology for the time, They would, what he would do, and he invented this technique, they'd freeze the brain. After the person had died, that was very nice of them. But they would they would freeze the brain, and then just like when you go to the butcher and they and you want some really finely cut cold 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 what, cold meats or whatever, like hammer, or whatever, and you get really fine. You go like that. Well, they took the brain like a like a ham, and they froze it, and then they and they'd photograph it photograph it, photograph it. So they could see then what the brain looked all, like all the way through. You know, it was good technology for its time. And then they saw because otherwise it just looked like a big mass of you know, yucky stuff. At least that's this, this, when they froze it then they get a clear image. Now where did that come from? <laughs> this. And that is when you're looking at your body you know, it just feels so substantial, right? Or you're looking at somebody's corpse and they're about to do an autopsy. It looks like, well, that's really substantial. But what, of course, you're seeing is appearances. You're seeing appearances. You're seeing visual appearance. That's what you're actually seeing is visual appearances. And so then you could, take, you could freeze the body, and then you could just put one of those little meat cutters on it. You know, just zip, just like top to bottom. Have it laid you know, on, on the slab. This is not a very good way to do an autopsy, but it would be an interesting thought experiment. And then just zip and zip, and then just shave it, you know, like, like cold cuts. You know, off the tip of the nose, and then, you know, just there goes the face. And what you'd be seeing until you'd finished all the way through this frozen body that you just turned into a whole layer of cold cuts, is just one series of empty appearances on top of another. That's all there ever was. From this outer surface, to inner, inner, inner to the back, it was all empty appearances. There was never any substance to it at all. It's empty appearances. And all those appearances are rising in the space of your mind. So do not try that at home. (laughs) So then, for the training in speech being like an echo, go without any companions to a place where there are echoes. So I think we probably shouldn't try this here. We'll probably disturb our neighbors. But people out there listening by podcast, you might be able to do this. So go out to a place where, again, you won't embarrass yourself. People will not be calling for the police and so on. And shout out good words and bad words. So, don't need to give any examples. You can, you can have fun with that. And when the words come back toward that echo or sound, there is no grasping onto the empty noise. So, okay, I'll, I'll do a silly one, but I'll keep it PG rated. You idiot! So, she gave me the canyon. You idiot! You, you idiot! And it comes back. Okay, how many people feel Insulted. When it comes back, you're just sitting there, and then, and then you're here, you idiot. How many people feel you kind know, of like upset? Like, that rock just called me an idiot. You know? Well, I think hardly anybody does that because you know it's an empty sound. It's just an empty sound. Right? Well, that's what he's getting at here. It's empty sound. It's an empty appearance all over again, whatever the word is, and that's a way of, of testing that. You're the most intelligent Dharma teacher in the world. You're the most intelligent. Oh, thank you. I was waiting for somebody to say that. You know, you are totally screwed up and should never teach Dharma. It's all empty. So, whatever it is, whatever it is, it's just empty. So, shout out good words, bad words. When the words come back toward that echo or sound, there's no grasping onto the empty noise. You don't reify it, you don't get upset because you know exactly what it is. It's an empty noise. Likewise, practicing regarding your own speech, too, as being, being like an echo. Just a quick aside. It was quite charming. Uh, when I was enormously enjoying this um, biography of, of Einstein, he did, in fact, learn to speak rather late, but not terribly late, like he was too... Twoish when he started first speaking. Many children start earlier. But it said when he was a very young child that um, before he would speak, his parents, and his younger older sister, Maya, before he would speak, he would rehearse. So you can see me. Please pass the water. Please pass the water. Thank you. Before he'd say anything, he'd rehearse it. He'd, actually, he would, his lips would move. As you see, he's kind of, how's this going to turn out? You know? And then he'd launch it. And then but he did that very, very frequently. He'd rehearse first. And so his, actually, when his voice came out, it was more like an echo. Because it already thought it, already rehearsed it in dress rehearsal. And then when he showed it with the world, that was the, the performance. You know? Quite interesting, quite interesting. And so there it is. That's the second session. And now we move on. For the training in thoughts being like a mirage. Now this gets a bit closer to the core because our thoughts do torment us. Some people looking into the mirror can feel quite tormented. Really, I mean, isn't it true? They can really just look and they see their face, they see signs of aging, signs that they're not as attractive as they'd like to be. I feel other people don't see them as attractive. Now they don't see, and then developing low low self-esteem based on that. So that's a serious issue, no laughing matter. And then the voice, there it is. It is what it is. It's empty. But when it comes to the minds, now it's gotten very nuclear. gone right to the core. because we all know, we all know, you all know, you're spending a lot of time with your minds, you don't have a whole lot of entertainment here. Not a lot of distractions. You can find them if you look for them, but We're not being barraged with entertainment distractions or obligations, demands on our time here. So it gives us a lot of time to be tortured by our minds. And so we know how miserable our own minds can make us. How is that possible? For the training in thoughts being like a mirage, look at or imagine a mirage. And just as it cannot be found by going in search of it, the assemblage or patterns of thoughts that move the mind is also without an inherent nature, like a mirage. And that's the second session. So the first session was for the body. The second session was for speech and mind, speech and thoughts. To see that in both cases, the, thought, the, the speech is empty sound. It's just sound. Empty. <coughs> And then the thoughts themselves have no substance, no tangibility. Of course, when we're dreaming and we reify them, they certainly feel like they are, but only because we reify them. But this is what that training in settling the mind in its natural state is all about. That we're seeing thoughts as thoughts and not thoughts as their reference. Because people can hurt us. They do hurt us, you know, physically and so on. But thoughts are not people. Stones, I mean, sticks and stones can hurt my bones, all of that. Sticks and stones can hurt the bones. We can be injured by the environment, by physical things, by other people and their their bodies and so forth. But the thoughts are not physical. They have no substance. They have no essence. They have no power of their own to do any injury whatsoever to us. And, of course, what would they be injuring? The thoughts don't really injure the body. Thoughts don't harm the body. They don't harm neurons or muscle tissue in in the heart, the thoughts themselves. Now, if people engage in a lot of depressing thoughts, anxious thoughts, angry thoughts, and so forth, can that harm, have a harmful impact on their immune system, their heart, digestive system? Definitely yes. That's, that's scientifically well established. You can do physical damage to your body by your attitudes, thoughts, mental afflictions, and so on and so on. It can shorten your life and so, in so many ways. It can have physical impact. That's true. But do the thoughts themselves have that ability? The answer is no, any more than the images in a dream have the ability to give you a nightmare. Reify them, and yes, you can have a nightmare, and that can have a harmful effect on your body. Reify your thoughts, and then, because you've reified them, they too can harm your body. But if you see the thoughts as thoughts, which is the whole point here, see them as empty, having no inherent nature, like a mirage. Mirage has never hurt anybody, Right? Now, if you reify them, if you're out in the desert and you see a mirage of a lake, you think, "Hallelujah, let's run there." You know, that can hurt you. You can die on the way, right? But not because the mirage. The mirage did not harm you. You're deluded. You thought it was water. It's not water. It's a mirage. So, if you recognize the mirage in a mirage, how can that possibly harm you? I think kind of impossible. Any more than a reflection in a mirror or images on a television screen can harm you. Reify them, oh sure, reify anything can harm you, okay? even things that don't exist at all. So, that is the second session. And we're finished. <laughs> I, th- I thought there's more of it, nope. That's it. That's the second session. That should keep you busy till tomorrow. And, uh, and then if you will, what I would suggest is I think a lot of you have now kind of found your niche found um, one or more shamatha practices, maybe a combination plate, earth and sky or earth and wind, what have you, that you find helpful, I'd really encourage you, stick with it, you know, stay with it, find what really helps, go with your strengths, don't beat yourself up over your weaknesses. But what I would suggest, maybe if, if um, se- settling the mind in a natural state, if that's not really one of your favorites, do it anyway. One session a day. One session a day. To develop that ability is, is priceless the benefit you can potentially get from that, the unnecessary suffering that you can avoid because of that, and suffering not only for yourself but other people, the number of regrettable episodes that will never happen because you've cultivated that ability and have the ability to just say no or to stop it, not to act out of the impulse because you recognize it and recognize you have a choice and you make a wise one. There is no price tag on that. There are immensely rich people who can't afford it. They can't afford it. They can buy, you know, multiple, multiple, multi, 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 multi multi-million dollar homes and they can't afford this. Therefore, they don't get the benefit of it because they don't know how or they don't give the time. So money can't buy it. Nobody can give it to you. But you can be a, a lonely beggar meditating in a cave and you can develop this and be much happier than other people who don't have the ability, no matter how wealthy they are. So this is worth a bit of time. So even just one session. And that will be definitely part of your dream yoga practice and definitely something you can do. Okay? So I'm racking up, listing up a whole bunch of things you definitely can do and you can succeed in doing over the coming 10 days or so on dream yoga. And if one of them isn't, that over the next 10 days you have a lucid dream, big deal. Succeed in nine things, fail in one. And you have not failed, you just haven't succeeded yet. So there was one point, and then we will end, and that is some of you are quite gifted, or you've trained a lot in lucid dreaming, and the question came up, might you, have, um, might you be able to know who you are, you know, just among this group here? Some people are having lucid dreams fairly regularly. You know, you're gifted in that way. And so might you be able to, if you have an interest, might you be able to communicate, share some of your experiences, insights, and so forth? Um, I wouldn't want to get in the way of that, but I'm not going to say who those people are because I'd be violating your privacy. And so, if any of you are you know, would like to have some kind of a little discussion, whatever, just all for the sake of dharma to enhance your practice, but to learn from other people who are relatively adept at lucid dreaming, have some experiences to share, like to learn from each other, why not have a little sub sangha? I have no objection to that at all. You know, and then you can just make a list. You know, that's um, yeah. You're not. You're not. You're not proclaiming anything, you're not showing off, you're just saying, yeah, um, I do have lucid dreams, and I'd like to, uh, I would be interested in sharing some experiences, learning from other people who have them as well. And so if you'd like to do that, you're welcome to do it. I'm not going to stand in the way, but I'm also not going to do anything more try to facilitate it. But that's part of meaningful speech. Meaningful speech, that we're learning from each other. Okay? So, that's it. And now, I have two questions here. If i just like to request, I will respond to these. But please, unless it's something you'd really like to keep anonymous, please no more written questions. Uh, Number one, you see I'm not giving a whole lot of time for it. I'd really like to give more time, but I also have made a promise to you that I'm going to cover this material. And I want to keep my promise. But unless it's an anonymous question, um, please let our questions be public so you actually take the microphone somebody can hear your voice, okay? But I'm I'm not disturbed at all by these questions, but just a reminder... Hopefully tomorrow we'll have some time. Question and answer. Good. So enjoy your evening. Tonight. Falling asleep. First of all, try to get a good night's sleep. That's the first thing. Do whatever you can. Get a good night's sleep. Mindfulness of breathing can be very helpful. Maybe some hot milk and honey could be helpful. Maybe a warm shower could be helpful. Do whatever is helpful. Get a good night's sleep. That's important. Once you get it, you're sleeping reasonably well, then you can move into this prospective memory and see if you can start facilitating. And and time is really, we're already late. But what I would suggest, if you're still having a hard time sleeping, the mindfulness of breathing is really good. But that resting in awareness. I woke up a number of times last night. Unusually, I I tend to sleep through the night. Last night I woke up multiple times. And every every single time I woke up, I just went right into stillness of awareness with peripheral awareness of mindfulness of breathing. And I woke up and finally got up at 4.20. Fresh as a daisy. No problem. You know, So that really works. It doesn't, because I have kind of a high energy mind, which means sometimes it's hard to fall asleep or get back to sleep. But doing that, it doesn't agitate, arouse, or disturb the mind. Just to be resting in the stillness of awareness, maintaining a very gentle peripheral awareness of in and out breath, doesn't disturb the mind. It's very restful. And you are meditating. You know, Get a bit more time meditating. Uh, I'll... I'll grab it whenever I can. Okay. Very good. So see you tomorrow morning. Have a good night.